Hello, hello, hello! I'm Paul Kershaw, founder of Gen Squeeze and co-host of Hard Truths, our podcast about Canada's broken generational system and how to fix it. Today, we are focusing on housing, as we sometimes do, because the growing gap between home prices and local earnings is making wealthier many homeowners, often older folks, while locking out many others from secure housing, often younger residents. And this dynamic is transforming class politics in Canada, raising new questions about what makes some affluent and what makes others not. Today, I am here with a wonderful guest, Jen St. Dennis. She is a talented journalist who has worked for a number of leading media outlets over her career, including the Taiyi, where she now focuses her time. And she has written a lot, a lot, a lot about housing over her career, focusing on solutions. I've been lucky enough to be interviewed by her a number of times. We've sat on a variety of panels together over the years. And I have to say, I'm kind of excited to welcome her to Hard Truths, where I get to flip the dynamic so I can ask her questions rather than vice versa. We welcome Jen to the podcast today in no small part because she has recently penned an excellent article about a study that examined the impact of the speculation and vacancy tax in BC. So Jen, welcome to Hard Truths. Can I start our conversation off by asking you to remind us about what is this speculation and vacancy tax that you were writing about? Oh, hi, Paul. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Um, Yeah, this speculation and vacancy tax, we kind of have to go back in time a little bit in our memories to back to 2017 when after 16 years of British Columbia being governed by the BC Liberals, there was suddenly a flip in politics and the BC NDP took the reins of power um, with some help from the BC Greens who propped up their party and allowed them to form a government. And at that time, you know, just like now, housing was a huge issue in politics. There had been this huge price spike between 2015 and 2016. It was really, really historic. Um, Home prices went up by as much as 40% in some neighborhoods between 2015 and 2016. Just to give you a sense of like, that is very abnormal. Um, You know, a normal increase in many other um, cities in Canada would be something like 2% a year for home price growth. So 40% was really crazy. Um, I had voters really looking for different solutions. And for a long time, the BC Liberals were just kind of going well, you know, the, the problem really is that there's not enough supply and we need to build more houses. And I think that was really wearing thin with voters. And so finally collecting data on whether, you know, there was this huge disconnect between local incomes and housing prices. Um, the BC Liberals finally released numbers that did show that a lot of the housing was being bought by people who didn't live in Canada. So, and as a result, they put in a foreign buyer tax. And then when the NDP came in, they kind of went farther and they implemented... Um, Another tax that targeted really expensive properties, over $3 million, they were taxed extra. Um, They increased the foreign buyer's tax, and then they also put in this speculation and vacancy tax as well that really targeted empty homes, but also people who had part of their household in Vancouver, like living in Vancouver, offering, you know, the wife and the children, but the husband living outside of Canada and making the family's income outside of Canada. And so that kind of family dynamic is often referred to in Vancouver as an astronaut family. I have to really emphasize this is a really, really old immigration pattern. It's been around for a long time, like since the 80s. It's not that it's that in itself is a problem, but the government was trying to target tax fairness by putting in this extra tax that also did target people who 
who live in Canada part-time don't actually pay income tax in Canada. Right, right. And I guess for this, in the spirit of full disclosure, I should make clear to listeners that uh, Generation Squeeze is actually relatively active in proposing and promoting this idea back in the day. I want to give it a, sh- a shout out to my colleague Tom Davidoff at UBC Economics for leading uh, a number of people to design the idea. And then Tom played an instrumental role in actually getting it implemented by the provincial government when the government changed, as you described. And I guess I should also say Gen Squeeze was really in, in, uh, involved in advocating for the policy change on vacant homes uh, and worked closely with the city of Vancouver uh, to help introduce the first ever empty homes tax in North America when then Mayor Robertson did it, I think back in 2016. So full disclosure, we have worked on this at Gen Squeeze and I think it's an important policy and uh, it's part of the reason that motivated us to invite Jen on and we thank you for that summary, Jen. Now, Jen, I think, you did a really lovely job in your recent article summarizing a study that was evaluating the impact of this speculation and vacancy tax. Uh, now that it's been in place in several years, I think the government commissioned a UBC economist colleague of mine named Sir Somerville and his colleague Jake Wetzel to analyze the impact. What did their study find? Well, they found that this tax actually worked the way it was supposed to. So, you know, this this tax is really designed to get these vacant homes to stop them from being vacant to like push them onto the rental market and or you know if people were not permanent residents of BC they could also avoid the the tax by becoming a full-time resident of British Columbia so on both of those measures the tax was actually successful they found that it had actually pushed 20,000 units like condo kind of apartments onto the rental market and just to give you a sense of how huge that was, that far outstripped all of the purpose-built rental that was being built at the time. So I think it was 20,000 units between 2018 and 2020. So like, that's a lot of, that's a lot of rental coming on supply. Well, you totally anticipated the next question I wanted to ask you is like, is 20,000 units a lot? Is it a big deal? Um, can you, you said it's like more than all the purpose-built rental units built in a set amount of time. Maybe you could remind our listeners, like what portion of the government of BC, the NDP government in BC, they have a goal of, you know, over 100,000 new units over a decade. That always makes me think, wow, this, this 20,000 units that already exist and we just are like reorienting how they're being used, used not as commodities, but as places to live for people. What are other ways that you've been helping your your readers understand just how big an impact this has been. Yeah, so be, they looked at a period before this, like before 2018. I think be, between 2010 and 2018, CMHC found that um, we were either losing a thousand units of rented condos or to, or gaining as much as five thousand rented condos a year. Um, so that can give you a sense of like the normal range might have been like between two thousand and five thousand condos a year. So just to compare with that. And I just wanted to emphasize too, like we didn't have to build those units. Exactly. So often when we're talking about building affordable housing, like, you know, sometimes I remember there was a tent city back in 2016 that led to the mayor of Vancouver promising to get this um, housing built on the downtown east side. And it's just being constructed now, like um, six years later. So, so just to, like, it takes a long time to get housing built, but we had all these units that were apparently just hiding under the couch cushions. That Great, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate you making that point uh, because often when we were advocating for 
introducing vacancy taxes and you know, we have it we have that more normalized in BC now we've been working hard at trying to have that happen more in Ontario there's some progress we can just chat about it at the federal government in its most recent budget but one of the points that we've been making at Gen Squeeze is exactly what you articulated that look it takes time to build new supply so when we have supply that exists now that we're not using efficiently for that matter potentially fairly let's use let's use public policy including taxation to nudge people to redeploy how that housing is being used. And so, again, the study is finding that it had an impact on you know 20,000 units, which is a big deal in British Columbia. But despite that substantial impact, housing prices have continued to rise in BC and Canada, for that matter, over the period of time that uh, the speculation of vacancy tax has been in place. And so I wonder, Jen, what do you think that reveals about the complexity of addressing housing unaffordability and housing wealth inequality in, in our province and across the country? Is there a silver bullet policy solution and this measure simply isn't it? Or do we need to pursue a silver buckshot approach? In other words, deploying many, many policy adaptations simultaneously. Um, Paul, you always have so many great expressions um, to describe housing problems. So I appreciate that because I think it helps people understand this really complex problem. Um, Yeah, and I see this, I always see this divide between the supply siders and the demand siders. I know you know what I'm talking about, but there's these kind of camps. Yeah, flesh it out for us. On like social media, Twitter, that certain people who think, who are really suspicious of any new development and are suspicious about developers always benefiting um, and really are suspicious that we even need more housing supply because it always seems to be going to the wealthiest people. It doesn't ever seem to be affordable, that kind of thing. And then conversely, there's a group of people who are really advocating for more supply, for densifying single-family neighborhoods. And those two groups, I find, are often kind of, like, really skeptical of each other's solution. And I just don't understand this. I just think we need to look at all of these solutions. Like, there's no question in my mind that, you know, we had this 30-year period where we weren't building, we were building condos, but we weren't building rental and not, and we weren't building social housing. And I'm like, there's no question we need more supply. But we have to, like, make the, well, I don't want to be, like city of Vancouver, but the right supply is what they say. So like for the right income levels. And then conversely, like there's no question that there were, like the study has shown that there were vacant homes. Um, I think they found that about 16% of the new condos that were coming online were being held as vacant kind of investment. So there's no question that we did need this as well. We kind of just need everything to steer things in the right direction. And I don't, I just, it upset, it doesn't upset me, but it, it doesn't, I find it just not helpful when people are kind of mocking solutions when they're just not kind of fitting into their ideology. Well, you said it upset you, and you kind of stood, you moved away from that. I'll, I'll share that I, that I find a similar kind of frustration that I think you're articulating because You know, on one hand, Gen Squeeze is often trying to point people to our big picture, overall comprehensive plan to address housing unaffordability and housing wealth inequality. And it has three pillars and each pillar has parts. And, you know, it's hard to explain to people in all in in a short period of time. And each of these pieces of the pillars, you could go into great detail about And And then I find myself at certain moments going and writing about in more detail about some of those pieces. And so a tax policy like, you know, the speculation of vacancy tax might be one of them. And, and the moment I start writing in more detail just about one part of an overall solution, then I find people often sometimes are wanting to pigeonhole me and say, oh, yeah, you're only in that camp. You're thinking that it's just on this demand side and we don't need to address the supply side. And I find that challenging and frustrating, I think, just as you articulated, because 
you know, we set GenSqueeze up to be recommending a broad range of solutions. We are a loud voice, for instance, to challenge NIMBYism that often gets in the way of building more affordable housing, especially nonprofit housing. And, and so I wonder, since you know, you're a journalist who's writing about housing solutions, this has you writing about a range of policy tools. Are you finding that some people are responding to each article you write, thinking that's the only thoughts you have about housing, as opposed to seeing the broader range of observations you've made about housing policy over the years in its entirety? Yeah, I think it's part of the way we interact with information on social media um, that is sort of to blame because, um, and also just people's deep, deep frustration with not being heard for years. Like, I think in Vancouver, especially like for years, people were, I don't know if you remember, but people would go to protests and they would hold up signs that would say, give us the data because we just didn't know we, we hosted some of those protests. Yeah, and when you don't have the information and when you don't have like a solid, a solid base of like knowing what exactly is going on, it's really hard to have a reasonable conversation that's based in facts. And so I think that's part of it. I think that's part mm, of the- Interesting. Um, so, I, you know, in the story that I wrote, I made sure to have a paragraph where I reminded people that concentrating almost exclusively on foreign buyers because it did become this thing like we didn't know it was, it was this mystery. You know, that in my mind that there's no question that there was like latent racism going on, you know, that was kind of building up. And then during the pandemic, we saw this really disturbing wave of anti-Asian racism. Mm -hmm. This has also been fomented in Vancouver where we've always had a problem with anti-Asian racism. This discussion about housing was, was part of it. Well, that's interesting. That leads me into wanting to ask you a little bit more about the politics of housing. I guess the politics of taxation in BC and Canada, that it's demonstrated either by the foreign buyers tax to which you were just referencing or the speculation and vacancy tax that was the subject of your story more specifically. Because if you think about the latter, the speculation and vacancy tax is described on the government of BC's website and they go at government to such lengths to communicate that 99% or more than 99% of BC residents are actually exempt from the tax. I wonder, Jen, why do you think the government of BC emphasizes that so much? That's brilliant. This is a brilliant political tax. This is, this is a tax that's easy to sell to British Columbians. So this is, I find, I think it's always really interesting to talk to the opposition as well. So now the BC Liberals, they're in opposition after having this very long reign of power in British Columbia, and now they're kind of, you know, they find themselves in opposition. So what they're saying about this tax, it unfairly penalizes, you know, um, people who own family cottages. In the past, some of them have told me, some MLAs have told me, oh, I'm worried that Americans who want to own second, want to own second homes in Vancouver, they're not gonna be able to do that anymore. And I think to myself, you know, the number of people, if you are struggling to even rent a place in Vancouver, you are going to not have a great reservoir of sympathy for someone who owns a family cottage in like Belcara or something. You're not going to have a lot of sympathy for a retired American who wants to live in Cole Harbor for six months of the year. If you are struggling to even rent a place, you know, you're going to have you're going to think to yourself, well, if people own more than one, like not only they own a home in British Columbia, if they own more than one, you know, they can probably afford to pay a little extra because after all, we're in this housing crisis. So when I look at the kind of 
you know, where, where people are positioning themselves. I think that's the challenge for like the BC Liberals right now in trying to oppose this tax and trying to show that the NDP have problems with their housing plan is that, you know, by saying those things, by kind of being like, well, this is really going to impact people's family cottages, it's it's difficult to see how many people mm-hmm. are kind of going to be resonating with that. I think that's a really astute observation. And I would observe, though, that the language on the Government of BC website is also showing a substantial degree of sort of political anxiety about broadening the conversation of who in BC might be benefiting from the rising home prices. So, you know, I interpret that part of the government of BC's website around the speculation of vacancy tax, where they say more than 99% of BC residents don't have to pay it, is to say that they're kind of bragging that they're not asking BC residents to contribute more in taxes, when in fact, many, many BC residents have been made much wealthier by rising home values. And it's not simply those who are foreign or those who are purchasing from other provinces and whatnot, but there's many regular, everyday residents here in British Columbia who've been being better off. And I think that the the political nervousness to engage in that broader part of society that actually benefits from housing is part and parcel of the cultural milieu that gives rise to our ongoing tolerance of home prices, leaving earnings behind, continuing to grow on affordability barriers for many residents, especially younger folks trying to start out in the housing system and kind of distracting us from the real wealth gains that others are reaping in BC as everyday regular citizens who may have been here for many years. Well, that's always the hard thing politically. Like, if bringing in new taxes usually is not a political winner. <laughs> That's usually not. When the NDP came in on a promise to slash the bridge tolls on the Port Man, like yeah. that was that was not good policy. Like there were lots of policy experts who were saying like that's not a good idea. Yeah, those you know it's not a good idea just to have like having no consequences for commuting by car or driving, but. That was a political winner for them because they took away a tax people did not like paying. Um, so it's it's going to be a huge political challenge to, you know, they, it is it's kind of amazing to me that they have put in these taxes that have been popular, but it, the tax on homes worth over three million dollars is another one that the NDP put in. Um, but it specifically targets very high net worth properties, and I don't know if you remember, but there was a whole bunch of like very raucous protests of people who live on the west side and they would carry signs complaining about Tom Davidoff who you mentioned the UBC prof who, who didn't actually even propose the school to them. wasn't even his idea no no I... uh, it wasn't even his idea yeah, and they would actually have signs that said like Davidoff bus off or something or like it was they were like protesting against a UBC professor and they were very angry about it and yet you know, it was, it did target a very specific segment of the population, wealthier people. Yeah, homes over 3 million, and it's like a tiny, infinitesimal part, well, it's a couple of percent of BC's housing market. So it's only going after a couple of percent, all things considered. Um, and you're right, it did raise a lot of controversy. I was implicated in that. Um, some groups took out commercials talking about Dr. Paul Kershaw's proposals coming to take your home and, and had... Um, uh, at a, a place where I was speaking, someone come and say, you know, this kind of tax is going to imprison me for life, whereas someone who uh, commits murder only gets 25 years. And you're just like, my goodness, there are some very significant hyperbolic statements happening. But I, 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 they were really angry about it. I, but 
it really did not affect most people. And there, there again, you know, you had the wider public looking at these groups of people who were a certain demographic. You know, there were people who lived on the West Side. And, you know, I think you had the wider population going, I just got rent evicted. You know, I am living with my roommate and I'm 35. Like, it's, so if you, if they want, if the NDP wants to, or if a government wants to extend that tax burden, or sorry, the taxes, and for instance, if they want to start tax, taxing capital gains on home sales, which has been like a sacred cow for 40 years, that's going to be a huge challenge. That's going to be an enormous challenge. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, Gen Squeeze often gets to be put at the front and center of the conversations about whether we should tax capital gains on principal residences, even though actually that is not a position that we are the working group that we've been leading with folks from multiple universities and multiple think tanks and housing leaders have proposed. We've proposed instead trying to go from thinking we're only going to design tax policy to affect like, you know, less than 1% of the population with a spec and vacancy tax and say, hey, can we can we nudge a broader part of the population, you know, across the country, you know, 10, 12% in places like Ontario and BC, where we have the most unaffordability, maybe sort of a quarter, because we need a bigger population level impact to disrupt the ongoing dynamics in our housing system that are tolerating and dare I say often quietly celebrating home prices leaving earnings behind. It makes homeowners better off. It contributes to, quote unquote, our gross domestic product being, quote, better. And then politicians claim political success when that's the case. And so we've talked about uh, adapting that that surtax you were talking about in BC being on homes over $3 million and bringing it down and applying it at a lower threshold of a million bucks. And that's actually been featured recently in McLean's as part of its big idea series. Uh, We've talked about it for now some years. Um, And our intention there is to try and get at the sort of cultural issue. And that's why we don't have, in my view, the kind of groundswell of like, this is such a problem. We talk in the media, sometimes some of your colleagues in the media, they'll say, oh, the housing market is hot when home prices rise, the housing market is healthy when home prices rise. You're like, oh my God, if you care about affordability, it's the exact opposite. This is terrible. Nobody write stories like that anymore. I feel like there has been a shift in the media from seeing it as, like, I feel like when the pandemic happened and Ontario, like all across Canada, was actually hit by these really rising home prices. I feel like there has been a shift lately when I see like the discourse coming out of Ontario, for instance, Ontario is always like BC. I just feel like people, commentators, are coming, starting to come around and realizing that this increase was way too fast. Um, I think there's some additional sophistication happening in the way that you say that you describe, but it's remained slow. I mean, especially when you have business media commentators, they'll fall into the 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 usual discourse of when a market is hot as if a price goes up and it, you know it's healthy when it's price or you know it's softening or it's weak, etc. as prices go down. So that remains quite common in my experience. And if you look at this year's, so the 2022 Ontario and BC budgets, both of those budget documents will describe the housing system as being strong because home prices have risen. And so you're right, there is some increased sophistication coming, but more generally, we still have this broader cultural and sort of Uh, policy technocratic view that falls into a bad habit of thinking, oh, it's a positive as home prices rise. And and I think that is what we continue to need talented journalists like you to help, you know, disabuse of us, contribute to that kind of cultural shift. And 
I, I wonder what you think about how Gen Squeeze could do that work better. So your article observes that over the last five, six years, we've kind of normalized in BC speculation in vacancy tax. It's relatively popular, actually. Polling quite supports it. So much so that you see at the federal government that in its 2022 federal budget, they're going to replicate a, a, a version of the, gen, of the BC speculation of vacancy tax across the country. And so in the light of that sort of normalization of a tax on a small group of people, these others who are the problem, as Gen Squeeze is inviting more and more Canadians to say, look, our housing system sustains itself over time because a broader part of the population, a majority of us, make decisions, whether intentionally or otherwise, that reinforce the status quo, a status quo that sees home prices leave earnings behind. We're trying to break into that discourse and say that many more of us need to take responsibility for how the system is working. And those of us, myself included as a homeowner, who've been really being benefited by these rising prices, we have an obligation to contribute more to solutions. How do you think we might borrow from the way in which the spec and vacancy tax has been normalized and try and normalize a conversation where other Canadians, a larger part of the population that have been benefiting from rising prices, that we could normalize the expectation that they could be a bigger part of the solution? Well, I think you have to explain how these taxes are going to work because I don't think people, I think, I don't, I think a lot of people who own houses don't feel rich at all. Like I think, especially if people have recently bought they're facing huge mortgage payments. You know, maybe they've been able to get money from their family for the down payment, but I don't think I don't think most people who own property feel particularly rich. And I think that older people, you know, they might feel like they don't really have any other option but to keep living in their um, large single-family home. Like maybe there's no other options, and maybe they're retired and they actually don't really have any income coming in right now, and they view their house as their retirement vehicle. So. I think you have to like realize that when you're talking about, oh, if you own a $3 million home, you're wealthy. Well, it's like, you're wealthy on paper. Do you buy that? Do you buy they're only wealthy on paper? I don't know. I mean, it depends on people's personal circumstances. Um, really? Someone with $3 million of assets isn't wealthy? Wealthy, but I'm just arguing. Well, you asked what... I know, now I'm asking Jen St. Dennis. Do you think someone with $3 million of assets is wealthy or not? I think do all sorts of mental gymnastics to convince themselves that they are not really wealthy. <laughs> yeah, okay. So in the spirit of helping people do those gymnastics, I think you have to show, I think you have to really show people like how much of the tax, how much would you pay and when would you pay it and what would that mean? And the thing that I can understand with the opposition to the, to the tax on homes worth over $3 million is that people really, because people over the age of 55 in BC can defer their property taxes and not pay their property taxes until they die. So they actually didn't even have to pay this extra tax while they were alive. They could just keep living in the house. You know, so that, that question of like a low-income senior who lives in an expensive house, that was, that was the policy that's intended to kind of give relief for that. Um, but a lot of people were really really didn't like that idea. They were like, I don't want it. They thought of it as being in debt to the government, I guess. And they, I guess they also assumed that they would be able to pass on this asset to their children or to their inheritors. And so the idea that, the idea that they would have to pay something like after they died was really, people were really in opposition to that. And 
I had a hard time getting my mind around that, like how that thought process, because I just, I just thought to myself, you know, like, do you really want, do you really want housing to be this expensive? Like, this is, this is like what we have to do, I guess. This is the extreme lengths we have to go to because this market is so unhealthy. Um, so yeah, I think if we're going to like extend the tax even further, people just have to have a lot of clarity about how exactly they're going to pay it and where it's going. Yeah. Well, our working group has tried to add that kind of clarity. We build that deferral idea that, you know, you don't need to pay the additional surtax until the home is sold or inherited so that if you are uh, house rich, but, you know, modest income, you know, it's not going to put any pressure on your day-to-day uh, livelihood. We, you know, we can spell out, you know, someone who's got a $1.1 million house, the additional tax would be an extra couple hundred bucks. Uh, we can talk about how much it'll raise in aggregate for BC for Ontario across the country we could talk about how many hundreds of thousands of new below market housing it could uh, build but what I find though still is actually actually my experience is different than what you're describing people don't need the technical details at least not at first because their initial reaction is shaped more by what you describe as sort of mental gymnastics to try and figure it away like really you think someone in a million dollar plus home is affluent? How, why? Why do you think that? And I think that is the public debate we need to have more of these days. And I know Jen Squeeze is keen to contribute to that because we are going to be releasing some polling in the not so distant future where we actually polled Canadians, asking them different scenarios. Hey, what if you're like a, a senior with an income of $22,000 and you live in a million dollar home that you own outright or a $2 million home or a $3 million home? Like, when do you think this person is rich or poor? Or conversely, you know, you're a younger person in their 30s with a, you know, $150,000 income, uh, but you own a home that's, you know, worth a million bucks with a $900,000 mortgage. They affluent or not, or what if they're a renter? And I think that's what housing has done. That, or I should say our housing system that has tolerated home prices leaving earnings behind. That's what it has done. It is like to think about the degree to which access to secure housing and the way in which it yields wealth over time is so instrumental now in driving new class dynamics. And I hope we can have you back in the not so distant future to talk that through in more detail, because I know that you're actually a really strong person at talking about class dynamics in BC and across Canada. And I'd love to tap into your insights on that front a bit more in a separate podcast. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's I think class in Canada is almost a taboo topic. I don't think any of us like to be viewed as anything other than middle class. And yeah, this divide between income and house prices, it kind of lets us be like, oh, well, it wasn't me. Like, it was the market that made my house so expensive. I didn't have anything to do with it. I don't even want houses to, house prices to go up that fast. But people are not really putting the two and two together in terms of like, well, to get prices to not go up so fast, we might have to increase taxes. Like, we might have to do something. We might have to use a mechanism that reigns in this rapid, rapid price growth, and that mechanism may be taxes. Like, sorry, but that is how bad it's gotten. I think that's another thing is kind of communicating to people like how bad it's gotten, how and the consequences on the rest of society. Um, you know, which can go all the way down to homelessness, right? Like, why homelessness is rising across the country. Well, absolutely. As home prices rise and you have 
you know, disproportionately younger, you know, demographic being uh, pushed out of, you know, home ownership than those even though, with, you know, good education and good incomes, they're, they're competing for the available rentals with enough bedrooms to have their kids in it. And that kind of then pushes those who might have been going, you know, with middle incomes into the rental space into looking for those housing, the housing that we reserve for the working poor, that pushes those folks to looking into social housing. And that then pushes those who we were hoping to serve who are at risk of homelessness back onto the street. So it has this terrible ripple effect as you're so aptly describing. I think I'm going to wind up there with both hope and a bit of nervousness because I think a group like Jan Squeeze has been really good over the last decade at helping people understand the harm, the intergenerational harm, the other kinds of harm that have been caused by home prices leaving earnings behind. And I think you can get many a, a person saying, yeah, I see that it's harder for younger people today or newcomers of any age or even that modest portion of seniors who are renters. But what I think we've been less successful at doing is getting people to see that it hasn't just created harm, it's created benefits. Many folks, myself included, have gained so much wealth and I don't think we've been good at like helping people recognize that, oh, what's harming others I'm benefiting from. And, and, and that, that as a result, that means I have to acknowledge those benefits and think about how can I use those benefits and contribute some of them to help be part of the solution for the harms that are being caused by others that are benefiting me. And, and I think that's the, a key place where the conversation needs to go. And I, I so appreciate your, your writing, um, specifically with the spec and vacancy tax and more generally about housing solutions, because I think you're one of the key voices in BC and across Canada, raising the level of dialogue. And thank you so much, Jen, for that legacy of writing that you're doing for our community. Thank you for joining Jen Squeeze's Hard Truths podcast today and, and sharing your expertise. We are so very appreciative. Well, thanks for having me. Um, we're continuing to cover housing at the time. Um, we're going to be switching over into our civic election coverage. And so we know that, as it always is, housing is going to be a huge topic, not just in Vancouver, but across the province. So you can check out our website for more. And listeners, if you want to find out more about Jen and her writing, please go to thetai.ca. All right. Thanks. Bye. And as always, go to our GenSqueeze.ca website to find the latest ways you can add your influence to our work because I have to remind you that our power to influence public policy grows with the size of our network. And this means please, please tell your friends and your parents, your relatives about Gen Squeeze, our Hard Truths podcast. Share with them why generational fairness is important to address problems like housing, childcare, climate change, and so much more as we try to make this country work for all generations, promoting well-being from the early years onwards. Send your comments about what you've heard on this episode to info at Gen Squeeze, as well as add any suggestions for topics you'd like to hear more about in the future. Cheers. Cheers.